This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tervish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, and I replace throughout the week. Now, as your listeners have probably noticed, I'm German. I grew up in West Germany and went to college at the University in Mannheim in 1988, where I rented a small apartment. Aside from my calculus classes, my biggest challenge as a teenager living alone was keeping my food supply organized. Stores in Germany back then closed at 1 p.m. on Saturday, and there would be no place to buy anything to eat until Monday morning at 9 a.m. The idea that somebody would go shopping for you or even prepare a meal kit and send it home to your doorsteps was just simply beyond imagination. Today, however, there's one of the most disruptive developments in the grocery industries. Uh, Companies like Instacart, HelloFresh, Blue Apron or Plated are almost as good as keeping you fed as by being with your parents at home. So in today's shows, I want to venture into the world of grocery shopping. And in the first half of this show, I want to welcome Sarah Mastro-Rocco, who is Vice President of Business Development at Instacart. In the second half of the show, I also want to welcome Josh Hicks, who is the co-founder and CEO of Plated. At this point, Sarah, welcome. Thank you so much. Great to meet you, Christian. Hey, Sarah, what is the part of grocery shopping that you like the least? What is the part that you really kind of dislike? Um, to be honest, just the time spent. Um, I'd rather be spending my time elsewhere. Um, so uh, walk us through a typical Instacart transaction. So I live I live in Wynwood near Philadelphia. I, uh, partnerships with Instacart, uh, the, the giant down the street and the Whole Foods. So imagine I would go and place, I think, a common transaction where you guys is around $70, $80, $90. I order through the app. What happens then? What, what is the magic? Yeah. yeah, so taking one step back, so you go, when, you, when you sign on to Instacart, you do choose a retailer first. So let's say you chose Giant. Um, you build a full basket. And when I then, when then kind of the magic happens, right? When you plus check out, you choose the hour that you want it, anytime within the next uh, five days. And really, customers, we have seen the trend that customers are wanting it right now, uh, <laughs> right now, same day. And then you can track the order um, from knowing at any time where it's going and um, who's shopping. So let's say you placed your order, and let's say I was your personal shopper. So Sarah, you, you would know when Sarah got the order and she's shopping in store. You can, fa- you can understand that she's found seven of 11 items and really track them. If there are replacements, which we've found at Instacart is really trying to make a great customer experience is, you know, in the store, grocery retailers aren't exactly sure what's on their shelves. And if they are, someone could buy it. So Instacart's really trying to make sure if something's not in stock, that we don't want to refund it if you're, you know, making a recipe or have your heart set on something. We want to find a great replacement or substitution for you. So you can approve those. At the end of the order, if you have chosen to, that personal shopper, I could call you and tell you, or we could communicate via text or an next message, and then you know exactly when the order is coming to your house. So it will say, the order is now on the way to your house, and you can track it on a map. Um, and this happened to me this weekend, actually. I placed my Instacart order on Saturday evening. I took my daughter to the park. Uh, the order was supposed to come between 6 and 7. It was actually coming right at 6 p.m., so I knew that I had to come home and, and receive the order. And it worked out quite well. I had dinner very easily. So as consumers, we know the receiving part of the business. So in your example, so I, I hate it. I hate the stereotypical that Sarah goes shopping for Christian. So, so, so let's make it Peter who goes shopping for, for Christian or, <laughs> or Sarah. Sure. Uh, mm-hmm. So Peter sits there uh, and, and, and whizzes up. There, there is an alert coming in that Christian has placed an order. How, how does this whole transaction look like from the shopper's perspective? Yeah, it's a great question. So uh, consumers are very familiar with the Instacart app and website, but we have a whole dedicated team um, that are dedicated to personal shoppers, and they have a whole separate app that's basically their office. So independent contractors that can choose when they work and how often they work. Um, And if I, let's say, for example, Peter uh, decided he wanted to work on Saturday evening for a few hours, he would get pinged and say, here's your order. Please go to this store at this time. Here's the 11 items you need to shop for. And if there's any problems, we have a, a community operations team that's supporting both the shoppers and the customers to make things go right. And then Peter's told exactly where to deliver it at what time, and we will tell him exactly where to go. 
But Did that answer your question? Yeah. Well, let me, I mean, the operations <laughs> profit in me gets really intrigued, right, because I'm looking for efficiencies yeah. and optimizations mm-hmm. everywhere. So um, so it's your traditional model that it's literally Peter then getting in his car or on his bicycle and, and, and getting to the giant, or is there Michael who is already at the giant because he has another customer right now? Uh, how, how often are you able to kind of combine trips or even better in the next level up, right? You might have giant, I might have a dedicated shopper for Instacart and yeah. other, right? Mm-hmm. And, and so, so what, what is, you, you mentioned the kind of, the, I think how you started very much, right? There's one shopper and they go shopping for Christian. Now that you've reached the scale, you, I think, have, oh, I imagine you have become much more efficient at this, right? Yes, you're correct. So those those personal shoppers can always shop and deliver. Sometimes they're just delivering, and, and what you're talking to about is, is absolutely correct. We want to be as efficient as possible and have a great experience for the customers, um, both in-store and shopping on Instacart. So we do have dedicated shoppers. So, for example, in Giant in the Washington, D.C. area, I know that we have um, shoppers that just stay you know, in the Giant, and if there's, a, if there's an order, they will be professional shoppers in the store. So they're shopping the order, and then they're staging it in climate-controlled fridge, freezer, shelf. And then once they stage that, that, that order is dispatched to a driver who can come pick it up. Uh, it's not just one order at a time, to your point. The more volume we have, the more we can batch orders. So if I'm a shopper or, or a delivery driver, I could shop two or three orders at a time and then have those orders all coming to the same neighborhood within the same hour. I mean, I, I guess similar to, to Uber and, and, and other kind of new economy type of business models, these models get better with scale, right? And so, again, I think the, the advantage that you now have, you have dedicated store shoppers in the store. Uh, are these uh, folks Instacart shoppers or are they, uh, are they giant shoppers? So the majority of our shoppers in store are Instacart uh, part-time employees. Mm-hmm. And then the drivers are the independent contractors or people that both shop and deliver are independent contractors of Instacart. I'm sure you had this discussion with Giant, right, that you go like, well, look, look, we, you've probably noticed by now we're bringing in a fair bit of business. Why don't you have an employee shopping for us? Is, is, is there a reason why Giant doesn't do that part of the fulfillment? So I can't talk specifically about Giant. I can oh, talk so, about sorry, uh, yeah, yeah, any, yeah. <laughs> yeah, sure, our, our retailers as a whole, um, for example, uh, always are talking about how can we be more efficient and how can we grow together. Um, most retailers choose to, for Instacart to do the labor because we're specializing in it. Um, we're specializing in hiring people that love to shop and have that shopping experience, and we can train them and monitor um, performance in stores and make sure it's a great customer experience. Well, as a, as again, as an operations professor, my heart starts beating with joy. I, somebody is measuring. Somebody is. Have you done? I, I'm sure you have done some form of stop watching, right? Stopping Christian as he goes through the Whole Foods or through the Giant and basically gets an, a basket of eleven items together. And then you have Peter, the power shopper, working for Instacart, doing the filling the same basket. Mm-hmm. Uh, how, how long does it uh, take to fill a basket? I mean, I, again, I think a typical basket size for you is in the $60, $70, $80 range. Uh, how long does a typical Instacart shopper take? And if you have comparison, how much would a layperson like, like you and me would spend on that? Sure. So I can tell you that you're absolutely correct, and I'm sure you would love that because Everything is used via smartphone and app. We can track everything. We can track how fast it is. Are there certain items that are very hard to find? Um, uh, what are most commonly out of stock? So we're tracking that and how everything correlates to a, a minutes per item or how fast you can be. And it's not just pick time. It's checkout time as well. So we work with the grocers to be even faster on express checkout or even bypassing the checkout long term. So those are all things we're working on to speed up. It's hard to compare to an average shopper because some are, you know, very time-focused in getting out of the store, and, and some might like to walk around leisurely, or some might not have the luxury and be towing a few kids. Uh, so we can say that I can say that we're much faster, and our app for personal shoppers is designed to have a learning curve too. We want to give people more time, you know, give those personal shoppers more time to familiar themso- familiarize themselves with the store, but also provide as much data as possible. You know, if our if we work with our grocery retailers and they can say, hey, this item is on. Item 12, you know, or on aisle 12, shelf 4, um, that could save you know, 30 seconds, which adds up over millions and millions of deliveries a year. 
Now, unlike Webvan that famously went broke as part of the new economy bubble some, some 15 years ago, uh, you neither own a fleet nor do you operate trucks nor do you have big warehouses. You are kind of the more, again, the Uber-style, Airbnb-style of two-sided market model. Uh, but now the, the gorilla here is, is, is Amazon is in with Amazon purchasing uh, Whole Foods. What, what is your take on that kind of new situation that you face? So, yeah, from a from a webman perspective, you're right. So we're not capital intensive. We, and from an Amazon perspective, we really are partnering with retailers to be the technology experts and the logistics experts to help them compete effectively with the Amazons of the world. Um, Amazon Fresh, as you know, as you and I know from reading in the press, um, has, has seemed to not been as much a priority. Now Amazon is focused on Prime now and using brick-and-mortar stores. So we do think that's where everything is headed right now because – as um, as I just heard, you know, a recent statistic, two-thirds of shoppers don't think about buying groceries until the day they need them. So a large warehouse an hour away from everybody is not the way to meet that customer demand. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio. I'm your host, Christian Tevish, and I'm chatting with Sarah Mastro-Rocco, who is Vice President of Business Development at Instacart. Um, Sarah, we talked about efficiencies, and again, that's kind of uh, really where my passion is. And I'm, I'm just kind of – I see the convenience story. I mean, uh, it makes a lot more sense that I sit at home and play with my kids or do, do work and have a shopper do the work for me as opposed to me basically spending the time. Um, from an efficiency perspective, where where do you really – beyond just having a delegation element to your business model, where do you really harness efficiency? We talked about the potential of the shopper already being at the store. Where else do you create efficiencies? Sure. So um, kind of breaking it down from a efficiency in-store, checking out, and then delivering, I would say yeah, at, at scale our model is professional shoppers in-store shopping you know, anywhere from two to five times faster than a normal customer. Uh, and staging those orders. And then also there, you know, if anyone who's been through a grocery store doesn't like waiting in line, there are ways that we can reduce or even eliminate that as well. That personal shopper is already checking out on their app, right? They scan everything um, and all that data is in their app. Why go through the point of sale? That app can talk to point of sale. That's saving on average five to seven minutes per transaction. Uh, and then as soon as that order is staged, we can understand if there are other orders in that neighborhood and our logistics system is recalculating really every minute what's the most efficient batch for those orders to take, which driver should it go to, how many orders should that driver go to. And then we track and show them exactly the route to go on. And really um, one of Instacart's uh, core values is every minute counts. We really are an operations company and understand that every minute or really every second you can shave off of an order um, is being more efficient. And we're really trying to drive down costs to our retailers and ultimately to our customers. We want this to be a great, um, accessible service that we can provide to everyone. Talk a little bit more about the de- delivery part. So we talked a, a lot in the early part of the show on, mm-hmm. on the in-store part. So there is basically now the order is completed. It sits in the staging area. And so now the order has to get from uh, the, the giant, the Whole Foods, to my doorsteps. Can you explain that process a little bit more? Sure. So if it's in the staging area, um, let's say I'm an Instacart shopper and I would get pinged that there are, say, three three orders available for me to pick up um, I, that I'm supposed to pick up. So I would go into the store and from a quality perspective, I will know exactly which freezer, fr- uh, freezer shelf uh, or refrigerator to go pick it up in. I scan those items. Everything that I do is tracked, obviously, for speed. It's, it's tracked for quality. The customer knows I'm checking out. So let's say I picked three orders. Uh, scan them all, put them in my car, and then I know exactly which addresses to go to and when. And then I drop them off um, to, you know, personal um, to the customer's doorfront. Um, and again, all that's tracked. And as soon as I'm done, if I'm still on a shift, then it would tell me that there is another order to go shop or pick up. So trying to use people's time uh, most efficiently, and also our shoppers like that because they want to be busy and they want to, you know, earn as much and be as busy as possible. Do you separate the pricing? Do you discriminate the pricing between uh, somebody who lives literally next to the store and somebody who lives three miles away uh, in a steep uphill with with snow? (laughs) We do not. So um, we don't offer delivery to everyone. Uh, It has to be usually within a rule 25 to 30-minute drive time from a house, which is longer than most customers would drive to get to their local grocery store. Um, But it is standard delivery of 
um, you know, usually over $35, but to your point, our average basket size is north of 90. Um, and then you can pay per delivery, or we have an express membership, which many, many customers like that they're waiving the delivery fee and having unlimited deliveries a year. So there's another form of efficiency that is happening more at the system level, I would imagine. Is if I think about one of the big curves of, of, of this country here has to do with parking spaces and, and traffic congestion. Do you see uh, there an, an, a net reduction in traffic? I mean, I'm sure you have the data for especially urban areas like San Francisco where just the number of parking spaces that need to be sitting in front of a supermarket are reduced so that basically the shopping model that there's a shopper in the store and then a pickup person who's just talking every kind of five minutes. Um, have, you, have you thought more about these macro-level changes? We definitely have. I don't have numbers to share with you, but one of the things we work with with our retailers is to be more efficient is to have a dedicated Instacart parking space because, again, that's time, you know, searching around for a parking space, especially in an urban area, can take, you know, five to ten minutes. So um, that coupled with our pickup program, which I haven't talked about today, but is something that Instacart offers and is rolling out more to give that customer a choice. Um, no one likes to find a parking space. So as a customer or as a Instacart delivery driver, there'd be an exact place to go, and a runner would bring that order out to your car. Um, and then again, more efficient, and to your point, parking lots could look much different in the future, uh, given you know up, upwards of 20% of orders might not come from that customer in the store. Talk a little bit more about the feedback that you're giving to the retailer. You mentioned that through these kind of the, the in-app uh, the purchasing that is kind of tracking the, the shopper in the store, you have pretty good data available for ease of finding things, of uh, potentially even in-stock rates and other things. Um, is that da- How do you use that data in your discussion with retailers now? Yes, we, we truly feel that our retailers are partners of ours, and we want to help them grow their business. Um, and we want to grow our businesses together. I think the the main way that we can provide a lot of insight from an in-store perspective is out-of-stock reporting. Um, so telling them by week what are the most out-of-stock items, um, really digging into that data and saying, is this really an out-of-stock item? Is it located somewhere that you didn't tell us? You know, are there are there common are there common items that we can work together to have a back stock? Because sometimes the online items that are outselling are very different from an in-store customer, right? It's a different perspective and it's a different uh, type of customer. So they might, you know, the top 10 items on Instacart might be different than the top 10 items in your store. So we want to have the store managers aware of that um, to make sure we're always fulfilling you know, our customers' needs. As you're growing as a business, you're, you're gaining in power in these discussions. I mean, I understand your desire or your, your already your achievement of being a, a partner there. Uh, uh, the prices that the retailer posts to the general public and the prices that are posted in the app and the prices that you pay, they're all the same? Or is there basically have you reached a size now where basically you can have custom pricing with the retailers? Sure. So um, we Instart definitely strives to be straightforward about both product pricing and service pricing. Retailers set their own pricing. This is their storefront on Instacart. They can choose to price the same as their local in-store prices, they could choose to price differently, um, and we try to be as transparent about that as possible. So that is t- totally up to our retail partners. And then Instacart is setting the delivery fees and service fees and, and our annual membership fee. And uh, if you think uh, another kind of five or ten years from now, as you, as you get better and better data, you could almost set up a retail consulting group. Or is, is that just some, I mean, you're saying the, the retailer makes a decision, but in some sense, you, you start to know so much more about customer behavior, especially on your platforms. You see multiple locations, you see multiple retailers. Is there a point where you feel, and I say this in a positive way, right, where you, you can become much more of uh, a consultant to the retail as opposed to just saying that like, you, you price however you like? Uh, I, I think we're always open to learning and growing with retailers in a, in a consultative way as a partner, not as a, hey, here, let me upsell you on this consulting business. Uh, it's a let's win together. Instagram wants to be your technology and logistics provider to compete against leading you know, e-commerce players out there. Um, and we're always looking for ways, you know, both, both of each, both parties coming to the table and saying, how do we get better? Um, what, do we, what can we learn from each other? So let's uh, fast forward by, by five years and imagine like the kind of the innovations in shopping that are kind of still to come. 
there is beyond the delivery, there is a last mile problem that uh, I think you described nicely in the introduction when you talked about the situation where you were with your kids out and there, there was a, a planned delivery you had to be home by. So uh, how long will we have to wait till Instagram basically has access to my fridge? Um, wow. Um, <laughs> so I'm not sure from a, from a five years perspective, I can say we're definitely focused on meeting customers' needs. And if, if customers wanted us to be in their fridge, then that is something that we could, uh, we could work toward in the future. I think what we do instead of that is track what I love about Instagram as a customer is tracking the items I buy often. Um, we might send a reminder email, hey, you need milk, you haven't ordered it in two weeks. Um, so being as intuitive um, as possible, um, without you know with with respecting respecting customer boundaries as well um but making sure that we can provide a great service and really it's 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 easy as the click of a button and you know, the first shop on Instacart is often the hardest you don't know what you want it's a whole brand new store to you but the shops after that are you know buying it again looking at the offers that we have online so really making it as intuitive and easy as possible if if that means some automation then we're definitely open to that do you see uh, customers having some form of Instacart delivery boxes? I mean, so at least in our neighborhood, uh, the UPS or the FedEx drivers, they just basically dump the box in either our driveway or our back door. But uh, I wouldn't mind somebody either having access to my fridge in five years from now, but, but maybe next year, uh, leave that vanilla ice cream in, a, in a, some form of an outside fridge. Is, is, are, are there innovations happening in that space? We're definitely talking to a lot of partners, and I know partners that are working on automated homes, um, you know, connected home type opportunities, whereas it, you know, a door that opens by itself or something in the fridge, and, and absolutely we're open to that. I think the convenience of Instacart now is you know when you're going to be home usually, um, so you can pick the hour that you want. We're solving that cable guy problem. You don't have to be home from 12 to 4 every day or 4 to 8. Uh, and then, you know, also there's that pickup option too. So if you are a suburban mom or dad, and you know that you're going to drive home, pickup might be a better option for you. So absolutely, um, can we deliver in your house um, and automate it? I think that is a part of the future. But I also think there's a lot of ways to quickly win in the next six to 12 months, just by making sure we can meet the exact time and place that you want us to be. How do you think this affects uh, employees? If I'm, I'm thinking about uh, store employees, retail stores, uh, so I have shoppers which are taking over things that customers did, right? You're moving from a self-service mm-hmm. to a service. So first order effect should more jobs. Is, 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 that a, mm-hmm. is that a statement that you would underwrite? Yes, we really do believe we're driving incremental sales um, to our brick-and-mortar retailers. What? Uh, how, how about the people having those jobs? Uh, they, this is most likely a part-time job. It has, a, again, a little flavor of uh, the Uber driver who is basically either doing this as a second job, a student doing this on the side. Is it, those are mostly part-time folks? Um, so they are. So the cool part about Instacart is you, you have contractors, again, that can do shopping and deliver. That's more of the Uber-type model. Uh, we have part-time employees in the store uh, shift leads or full-time employees, and, and many corporate employees started out that way. So we do think that there can be a career path at Instacart um, with these different opportunities, depending on a how you know how much you want to progress in your role and how much time you have, but still having still having access to the independent contractor jobs. That if you want to work two hours this week, that's fine. And there is a wage rate for the hours they work, or is there basically a commission and? If traffic is low and Christian just ordered two cans of Diet Coke with, with very little margin in there, uh, those, those employees are, are, are getting paid less. So our employees in-store are paid per hour from an mm-hmm. employee perspective, and the independent contractors are paid for what they, what they do. Instead of an hourly job, they're paid for the amount of work, amount of deliveries, the size of that order. Uh, what, we, what we have is a team of data scientists that really are trying to match supply and demand. We never want an Instacart shopper to come on and not be busy, um, but we also don't want to hire too little and not be able to meet our customers' demand. So it's a constant balance that we're working on um, to, to match supply and demand so everyone's happy. Uh, Sarah, uh, we've talked about five years from now, the, maybe the last item to be uh, discussed, or I, we have time to discuss, is mm-hmm. thinking again, again more about growth and competition. As I understand the industry, uh, it's still relatively rare that people use Instacart or other kind of grocery shopping techniques online. vast majority of grocery shopping is still done the old way. So do you see 
the conversion of new customers into online shoppers as the path to growth forward? Or are you already in some form in a share game where you're just competing against other providers of similar services? I don't, yeah, I, I definitely see it as the former. This is a, a huge category that's very new. So the grocery industry is you know, $800 billion. When you think about convenience or adding restaurant in, it's closer to a trillion. And of course, most of that is in the traditional sense, but you know, more and more we, uh, per week, we're seeing new customers try Instacart and love it. Um, and we're seeing you know, two and three times growth rates that we're you know, year over year. Uh, and excited about that. So I don't think it's a, a competing. We're really focused on meeting customers' needs, meeting our retailer and shopper needs to provide the best experience. And then we think naturally as this category grows, uh, Instacart is set up for success. What is the future then of stores? We talked about the labor, which again, I think the labor, again, you're all offering a service or something the customer did. There will be more work. Um, if we're still in a stage where, again, to stay with the giant or the Whole Foods on the street, the vast majority of the shopping there is for the traditional shopping, and the online shopping is, you know, maybe five or ten percent of their business. Um, but do you see a pathway? And again, if we think back to how Amazon has transformed over the years, and how quickly that transformation ultimately went. Um, do you see a pathway that some of the stores in my neighborhood might just basically become distribution centers for professional shoppers? I th yeah, so from a dark store perspective, I think that could happen, but I think more likely what's to happen is the store will just be a bit redesigned. So you, know, you, you might not use all the floor space for uh, housing product. There could be some type of uh, process where the store looks very different. There's a you know, Many stores are doing this today where there's a pickup um, area, right? Or there's a separate door, um, a door for customers that are being picking up products. There's a separate door for customers who might be picking up a delivery or, I mean, delivery drivers are picking up a delivery. So I think that will definitely be redesigned. I think this is still a very uh, competitive margin business. So having a dark store might not make sense if it's in a, you know, a high traffic area. You want customers to come in and be able to shop. That's never going to go away, but let's redesign your store. So the e-commerce part of it isn't disruptive. It's really additive, and you're using the, you know, maximizing the value of that real estate. So from an Instacart perspective, what would be your perfect store layout? I mean, the traditional store layout uh, is this famous example of the milk is being all the way on the other side of the store that I basically have touched every shelf by the time that I finally purchased what I wanted. If you could design the store for maximum efficiency, what would you do? I think every store would be a little bit different uh, based on the traits and, and high high demand products. Um, I can say that the, the checkout and delivery process would be the most different. There could be, you know, there's we're already doing this today, but we can all and we're talking about retailers of evolving it. But having a separate staging area checkout process um, that is separate from the traditional store. Um, but then from an arrangement perspective, yes, we want to know exactly where things are and are they in stock and could there, for example, be um, an area of the store that has the, you know, the top 100 picked items. Could that save a lot of time? Um, and it also goes back to special carts and how can we make sure that um, we're picking efficiently and we have the equipment to make sure that we're picking efficiently. So the, you know, the good or bad answer is we're not exactly sure yet, but the, the cool answer is we're constantly experimenting to get better. Um, another one of Instacart's values is, of course, but maybe. So we're trying to uh, always question, things have been done this way, but how could we do it differently? And in my experience here, four years at Instacart, you know, every three months something changes and we have to think differently, which is so cool. And we're really motivated to constantly challenge ourselves to be faster, think differently, and well, dream with me is what we say. Says Sarah Masteroko, Vice President of Business Development at Instacart. Thank you, Sarah. Speaking Thank of you, time Sarah. and efficiency, we need to take a short break right now. When we will come back, I will welcome our second guest, Josh Hicks, who is co-founder and CEO of Plated. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Tevish, and this is Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Series XM. We'll be right back. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Tervish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Tevish. This is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, Series XM. Today we've been talking about grocery shopping online and meal kits. Uh, in the first of the half of the show, I talked to uh, Sarah Masarocco, the Vice President of Business Development at Instacart. It is now my great pleasure to welcome Josh Hicks, the co-founder and CEO of Plated. Welcome, Josh. Thank you. Thanks for having me. 
Josh, what made you come up with the idea of Platelet? Was it more like a personal need or was it like a rational market analysis where you realized these new business models would kind of soon take over the world and it was kind of just basically sitting there with an Excel spreadsheet making a rational analysis? Well, it was, it was a bit of both. Uh, so I have one, one co-founder, Nick, and I, <clears throat> who both had the same challenge around uh, working, you know, long, long hours. We were both working in finance briefly. And, uh, and having the challenges of, of trying to eat, you know, more fresh food and not eat takeout all the time, uh, and having trouble cooking, both because we weren't very good at it and because, you know, we were both ending up with lots of waste at the end of the week. And, uh, so when we got together to start a business, you know, it was a shared paired, a shared pain point, something we wanted to solve. Uh, and then we went through that rational market analysis to make sure that, you know, it wasn't the only, just the two of us or, or a handful of other, uh, of other folks. Uh, and then we could actually build a big business out of it. You started Plated, I think, around 2012, the same year as uh, I think Blue Apron also started. Uh, why now? What, what what technology was becoming available that meal kit home delivery was is really becoming the best invention since uh, sliced bread? Yeah, I think there was a, there were a couple of trends that, that converged around that time. You know, on the on the logistics side, uh, there was uh, well, first off. FedEx home delivery, um, not exactly a technology, but oh, absolutely, uh, you know, yeah, infrastructure per se that wasn't available that was only started, and I believe that sort of uh, maybe 2009 or, or around then um, that made it possible, uh, economically possible to deliver the meal kits. So that was an important piece. Um, you know, really just the ease of standing up uh, sort of you know SaaS software uh, and a lot of the, 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 the sort of tools that you know everyone's heard lots about. Um, you know, cloud infrastructure, et cetera. And then I think importantly on the consumer side, uh, there were both cultural trends and technology trends. So on the cultural side, uh, you know, it's really a generational shift. Um, and, and I think generational meaning that, you know, sort of younger folks are leading the way and a lot of, you know, older people are following in terms of moving away from processed food, fast, you know, fast food, et cetera. So just the broad shift towards wanting to eat more fresh food and healthier uh, has been important. Um, and then in terms of reaching those people, you know, back in 2012, uh, Facebook and a lot of the other social channels were really, you know, still pretty early on in, in, in their life cycle. Uh, and that made it possible to reach large swaths of people, um, you know, in kind of targeted ways with small budgets, you know, and I think that was, uh, was a new, you know, a, a new development that allowed us to actually get the business off the ground. Speaking about uh, small budget, uh, what I liked uh, also in the discussion with my first guest from, from Instacart is that if I think back to the big failures of, of Webvan and kind of how much money was required to get off the ground and then ultimately how much money was destroyed in the bankruptcy, both Instacart and you guys, it strikes me like a relatively easy business to test, right? I mean, for worst cases, you just basically prepare some meal kits, send them out to friends and uh, through, through that, that, that you have in your personal network and just see how, how you react. So how, how did you get started? I mean, what was uh, the first small-scale operation that you ran? We, we got started, you know, much as you're describing. We we stood up the, the original website, so I was doing all the, the software development back then. Uh, we had a, a small, you know, leased warehouse space to do the you know, the, the, the meal kit construction. Uh, and we were running small scale Facebook ads. You know, I think we were spending about $10 per day on Facebook. Uh, and again, I think, you know, it's interesting and it may have been a unique moment in time where Facebook was this, you know, kind of brand new channel. It's gotten a lot more expensive since then. You know, back then you could reach 100% of your organic audience, right? So if you had 100 fans, 100 likes on your Facebook page, you could reach all of them with a post. Um, that's changed dramatically since then. You have to pay to reach those people now. But back then, it was, you know, relatively easy. Uh, and it's a, a, a visual medium, right? Pictures of food is, is sort of half of the Internet, right? And we were able to do that to reach those customers with, you know, beautiful food imagery uh, and to do it in a targeted way. So running $10 a day on Facebook uh, worth of ads to target people and to reach our organic audience, you know, as that grew, uh, was really how we, you know, were able to sort of test the product. Friends and family are good, you know, very early alpha testers, but I think it's hard to rely on them to give you honest feedback. They're worried about hurting your feelings, and uh, it's just different once you've got actual, you know, customers. Talk about how big Plated is now and uh, how many customers you serve. 
Yeah, so plated today, and, and you're right, we started in the summer of 2012, so we're about six years in. Uh, plated today ships or delivers to all of the lower 48 U.S. states, and we are delivering you know, millions and millions of meals a month uh, into hundreds of millions per year in revenue, um, you know, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 1,000 employees. Uh, and about seven months ago, uh, we were acquired by um, a family of grocery stores called the Albertsons Companies. So it's, it's Albertsons, but also Safeway and a number of other brands. Uh, so we're in the process of rolling out to all of you know, their stores uh, across the country to really build out this, this omni-channel thesis that we have. Now, speaking about the, the current system or the omni-channel system to come, uh, walk me through your customer experience. I mean, you mentioned your your website. I was on the website this morning, and I was glad that I had just eaten because everything looked so tasty that I would have just gone going home with placing orders there. Um, so what happens from the time that I order a meal to the time it uh, shows up on my table? Yeah, well, thank you, first off. So from the, from the time you order, uh, what's happening is there's a – there's a lot of technology in the background, and a lot of it is supply chain technology. So there's actually a, a pretty robust machine learning practice that uh, was the first, you know, uh, proper sort of machine learning and AI um, piece of you know, technology that we built inside the company focused on customer demand prediction and forecasting um, down to the ingredient level at each individual warehouse. Right. So we need to understand how much lettuce to buy in California and how much to buy in you know, Florida and in New York sort of separately and on what days and multiplied by, you know, hundreds or thousands of different ingredients each week. And so the, the sort of combinatorial math gets very big very quickly. Uh, but the good news is that, you know, software needs complexity. So we've built all that software that does all the forecasting. You place an order, software goes to work. It's sort of calculating what you, you know, what we think you'll want. Uh, based on, you know, past behaviors, based on customers that sort of look like you. Uh, we're, we're starting to communicate those, those forecasts to our suppliers, uh, with increasing precision as we get closer and closer to the day of delivery. Uh, at some point, you know, the supplier delivers to our warehouse, uh, and those suppliers are as, uh, you know, local and sort of regional and fresh as possible. Um, deliver to our warehouses. We, you know, take possession of the food, uh, we portion it out, right? So a big benefit is you don't end up with a lot of waste at the end of the week. If you only need uh, a few, you know, sprigs of parsley, that's what you get, not an entire clamshell. We then kit it into the right you know, meal kit and then hand it off to a third-party delivery carrier. So we're not doing the, the, the delivery. Um, we're using services you know, all, all the sort of modern delivery services plus the big guys. So, you know, FedEx for some regions uh, down through, you know, think of your favorite modern tech delivery carrier now, uh, as well as, you know, shipping to uh, a number of different grocery chains where you can, you know, walk in last minute and, and pick up a single kit. I love the kind of the operational details with it, and let's stay on that theme a little longer. So from a consumer perspective, the obvious benefit is, is the portion sizing, the, 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 the meal comes, everything is super convenient. As an ops person, I see other forms of uh, operational efficiencies bubbling up here in the discussion. Uh, the thing that amazes me the most is you never can have a stock out, right, because if uh, – avocado are out of stock, then basically there's no avocado salad that's going to be on the menu today. Um, can you speak a little bit about, you, you really have changed the retailing model from the world of that we've long lived in, that the customer says what they want, to something that the customer will most likely by machine learning like, but in some sense you're driving what gets shipped. Is, is, that, one, is that the amazing kind of part of the business model here? I think it's it's, it's more of a hybrid. So we do shape customer demand in some ways. Uh, but, you know, first and foremost, we want to, to serve people what they want, right? So the whole experience is built around customer feedback, both you know, explicit and implicit, right? It's important for us to hear what people say they like and don't like. But just as importantly is to, to sort of take all the different data signals. How long do you spend browsing certain types of meals? Uh, you rate a certain meal five stars, but you may not be able to articulate exactly why you liked it. It was just, it was a good flavor. Well, you know, we don't expect our, our customers to be trained sort of culinary experts. We can, in the background, do a lot of 
you know, data manipulation, machine learning, et cetera, around uh, what are the specific you know, molecular combinations of the spices and the food and the cooking techniques and, and those things to get at you know, what you mean when you say, I like that flavor. So we're both listening to customers and shaping demand. Now, you're, you're correct that we can't have a stock out in the sense that if there's a, a nationwide avocado shortage, we simply don't put avocados on the menu. Now, in, in, in practical reality, sometimes that happens where we've put it on the menu and last minute there's uh, a fire in a certain region or some other natural disaster that causes a shortage. Uh, and we end up having to, you know, to, to attempt to fulfill the customer orders anyway. But by and large, yes, we don't have stock outs. Um, you know, we think of it as helping to shape customer demand, but really fill their orders for things that they want. Uh, so it's helping people to discover new flavors, new culinary techniques, new recipes, new ingredients, and then to, you know, to really make that happen for them. Um, you know, we've always sort of thought that, you know, grocery stores, they were started as general stores 100 plus years ago. Uh, and there's, there's a sort of job to be done when you walk into the store of, you know, I need breakfast cereal and I need paper towels. Um, but then there's also, let me think about how many nights per week or this coming week I'm eating at home. How many people am I cooking for? Well, great. This night is just my family. That night the neighbors are coming over. And people are translating those nights and those occasions into ingredients. We're helping them to just make that easier, right? We're, we're removing the friction around that. You don't need to translate the into ingredients and have a long extended shopping list. Now you can just pick up the appropriate amount of meal kit. You have four people this night and eight people the next, and you want this kind of meal or that kind of meal. Well, so you're, you're taking out friction, but again, I think you're also creating value in the terms of you. You're making it more efficient because you probably, after having observed me for a while, know my preferences maybe even better than I do, and you can have scale economies in a form that previously were not available. Yes, I think that's right. So would you dare make a rough forecast estimate prediction? So if I compare two families, so both having a similar type of pasta dish uh, tonight. Uh, one of them is basically going through the process of uh, coming through plated. The other one is having, for whatever reason, they found a similar recipe that they, 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 they found online. They're cooking this a very similar dish themselves, but they have done the whole kind of grocery shopping thing. So we understand that the one that is used plated will have had a more convenient experience, right, because they didn't have to go to the store. They will not have to deal with the whole kind of shopping aisle frustrations and standing in line. I, I'm interested now from the fulfillment cost element. Uh, would you be able to kind of quantify by how much more efficient the plated experience would have been because of not having the, the frictions, the market mediation costs, scale economies? What is the magnitude we're talking about here? Sure. So the, the way that we think about the, the, the plated experience and product from end to end is you know, really helping to transform the customer experience from planning and shopping to cooking and eating. So on the planning side, we're making that more convenient and, and easier for the reasons you've touched on. We, we know your preferences. There's a, there's a level of curation, but with a big selection still. So, you know, finding that right level of choice for folks. Uh, on the shopping end, uh, it's certainly more convenient there. Um, you know, whether you go into the store and simply pick up the kit or order it for home delivery, you're ordering the meal and not having to go through the process of translating to, to ingredients on your own. So the cost element of that, and we, you know, we, we look at this uh, regularly, it depends. Uh, and the reasons I say that are, it depends on how often you're cooking, uh, how many of the ingredients in that recipe are perishable, right? Mm -hmm. If you're making a large degree of a recipe, a large amount of a recipe that's completely shelf-stable. You know, you can sort of uh, cook it all and freeze it, et cetera. We're not going to be, you know, any cheaper. We're probably around the same cost. If you're only cooking two, three, four times per week, and, you know, that's a lot of perishable ingredients like herbs, we are going to be cheaper for that customer because you get the amount of herbs that you need the amount of herbs and spices and so on, and they don't expire, right? You don't end up having to throw half of them away. So it really does depend. Um, 
we like to think that we are, you know, cost competitive, if not cheaper. But the real point is the experience, right? If you're looking to eat the cheapest way possible, uh, it's probably going to be, you know, a two or three ingredient recipe that you make in bulk. Um, and that's not really the, the sort of need that we're fulfilling for people. It's more the experience of discovering new recipes, discovering new techniques, um, you know, cooking restaurant quality food at home uh, in a way that's cheaper probably than you could do you know, on your own in a grocery store. Can you talk a little bit about the upstream part of the supply chain if you think about the interface with the, the sources of the food, be it farmers or other sources? Sure. So it, it's, it's also complex. You know, and I think this is a, this is a very interesting area of the business and of the, the food supply chain generally. You know, I think agriculture, uh, I think I was reading about, I believe it was a McKinsey study recently. Um, agriculture is one of the least digitized uh, parts of the economy currently. So, you know, as we interact with the various kinds of suppliers and, you know, it is, it is a fairly wide range of type of suppliers, right? Direct to source, so direct to the, to the farmer or the rancher, or what have you, as, as often as possible, um, but also to, you know, distributors and wholesalers where necessary, right? Spices are a good example. You tend to have large national wholesalers of spices. Uh, there isn't a great way to sort of go direct to the supplier, and it may not make sense to do that anyway. But as you interact with all these sort of various parts of that supply chain, uh, what becomes clear is that, uh, there is still a lot of very manual order taking, you know, phone or fax or, or, or email perhaps. Um, there's not a lot of electronic systems, you know, inventory or, or otherwise. Um, there's very uneven distribution of those, you know, electronic systems. So it's a, you know, it, it's a very labor intensive and, and sort of, you know, interesting, but Unevenly, unevenly digitized part of you know our supply chain. Well, it's an interesting opportunity then, in the sense, right? I mean, that is uh, talking about the efficiency gains that we, we we discussed earlier on in the household at the level of perishing items. If there's a way of an in, to, to tap into an inefficient part of the value chain that relied on old ways of doing business, and you come in with with your expertise and your purchasing power. Uh, do, you, do you approach farmers and say, like, hey, hey, Mr. or Mrs. Farmer, uh, we notice uh, you have uh, you have great products, great dairy products, great cheeses. We wouldn't mind being the you know fifty percent of the buyer. You would take fifty percent of everything that you produce over the next three years, but in return, we'll have kind of want you to convert onto our platform. So we have. We have conversations that sound like that, but I think the details are, are, are a bit different and importantly so. You know, we're not building a platform for those suppliers to sell into, you know, per se, right? We're not building an inventory platform for them. We're not building a commodities hedging platform for them to, you know, buy and sell futures and lock in prices. There's a lot of important elements, I think, of those, you know, farming or other food operations that, that we're not doing. Uh, those are very, very, I think, uh, interesting and exciting opportunities. Um, but we are, we're, we're trying to maintain, you know, discipline in, in doing what we do well. We're supportive and we have lots of friends who are working on, you know, friends in other technology companies and startups that are working on those parts of the value chain. Um, you know, be it indoor farming, the hydroponic, you know, sort of lettuce growers, um, be it supply chain logistics, uh, either, you know, inbound or last mile. Um, you know, I think the reason that, uh, that the food tech and ad tech uh, has become, or at least is becoming, a very you know, buzzy sector of uh, sort of startups is that uh, there is such a big opportunity here. Uh, but you know, we're not going to build the entire supply chain end to end. So, if you think about the innovations to come in this space. Um You mentioned food tech being certainly as hot as mobility maybe was five years ago. Um, so where do you see in your consumption chain from me thinking about like what's for dinner next week towards the delivery of, of your meal kits? Uh, what is going to change in that consumption chain over the next couple of years? I think a lot of it, I think a lot of investment has gone into the consumer facing experiences. And certainly there are still opportunities there. Uh, but I think relatively that area has been 
heavily invested in, right? So whether it's meal kit delivery, prepared food delivery, grocery delivery, um, you know, a, a number of delivery plays, uh, as well as a number of uh, sort of next generation CTG products. Uh, so, you know, there are certainly, I'm, I'm sure there are other opportunities there, but um, the consumer facing part of the value chain has been relatively heavily invested in. Uh, from from our vantage point, what hasn't been as heavily developed yet is more of the the, the back end supply chain, you know, more enterprise software, less sexy, big tech uh, sort of platforms, right? Building data interchange standards between these various vendors. Um, you know, there's some talk of blockchain for those applications, uh, which I think probably in the long term is is an interesting thing. Uh, as far as I can tell, there's some very, very foundational, you know, just just moving the these organizations uh, online, period, right, as a first step. Um, moving the phone and fax, utilizing organizations into email as a first step. Uh, I'm not sure that there's, you know, a, a great commercial model to move them into a blockchain, you know, immediately, but that kind of thinking, I think, is, is where the opportunities are. So, Josh, so your prediction is that in five years from now, my kitchen will still roughly operate the same, but it's most of the fulfillment processes are where the innovation is taking place? I, I think that's probably right. You know, I think there will be incremental changes and improvements to the way your kitchen operates. I think it'll be more personalized. You know, some people don't want to cook at all. Um, I think that a lot of the offerings will become more integrated. So, you know, maybe you want a delivery of, you know, two meal kits for two nights of cooking and three uh, ready, you know, heat and eat meals um, for the other night. And, you know, and that all that the, the, the data for those, <clears throat> the data from those deliveries is also used to make, to make rec restaurant recommendations for you for the fifth and sixth nights. You know, so I think that as, as the market consolidates and shakes out, uh, we're already seeing a lot of, you know, for instance, the prepared food companies uh, having challenges with profitably scaling, you know, their businesses. Um, it's not because people don't want those products, and it's not necessarily because you can't do it profitably. I think that, you know, there are certain uh, density and scale characteristics that are different from some of the other businesses, and you probably see a lot more, you know, consolidation of the different types of offerings. So in five years, your kitchen will probably be smarter about the way that you want to eat. Uh, it'll probably be smarter about um, how you prepare food and, you know, the, the, the nutritional composition of those things. Um, but a lot of this is, I think, combinations of things that exist, at least in sort of 1.0 forms now. I think there's a lot more zero to one, uh, you know, kind of type of opportunities still in the, the, the background, right? The, the non-consumer facing B2B parts of the supply chain. Well, that's a very interesting prediction, really, right? From a technology strategy perspective, it's really then we're reaching some form of the, an emergence of a dominant design. Consolidation is happening. Efficiencies is kicking in. So in some sense, we're seeing the light. We just have to get there now. I think that's, that's, that's probably right. You know, um, still lots of, of value to be created all over the supply chain. Uh, but I just I, I feel like the consumer-facing parts are relatively more mature. Says Josh Hicks, Plated co-founder and CEO at uh, Plated. Thank you so much, Josh. We've reached Thank the you. end of the show today. Uh, great shows on, again, future of grocery shopping and meal kits. Fascinating area. My uh, colleague, uh, Nikolai Sikokao, and I are writing a new book called Connected Strategy, in which meal kits are the opening example for, for, for the book. So stay tuned on this one. Uh, we've reached the end of the show. Uh, that leaves me time to thank my sound expert, uh, Dion, and my producer, Matt Dez, for their wonderful support today. We hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Terish, and on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School, thank you for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.